Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Eventually in October 2014, I had an overdose that almost killed me. I had my friend Parker, he found me like foaming at the mouth in my room. And you know, I woke up about two and a half weeks later or so. And everyone was like, dude, you had an overdose and like nearly died. And that's what got me out of it. And I was happy that it happened. I wasn't really upset. I was disappointed in myself, of course, but I was happy that I finally had a way out. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Francis Nyan. He is a location-independent freelance copywriter and email marketing strategist. He works with brands around the world to help them grow their email lists and increase sales through high-level list segmentation and automated email campaigns with emotionally driven story-based copy. By improving their email marketing alone, he is able to help his average client boost their total company revenue by 30%. Born in the Philippines, Francis grew up primarily in the United States And after a personal battle with drug addiction, it was a heroin overdose that inspired him to get clean, healthy, and build the life of his dreams. In the past five years since getting clean, he has been able to become fully location independent, build a six-figure freelance copywriting business, and he has traveled to over 30 countries. Francis, welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you so much for that, Matt. Happy to be here and uh, looking forward to giving your audience a heck of a show. My man, I am so excited to have you here, brother. You and I have uh, been in touch for a while now, and I'm super excited to get you on the show. Let's just start off and talk about where we are actually recording this from today. We're not in person. I am actually based in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. I am in Asheville recording this today and actually not very far from the Tennessee border. But uh, where are you today? Man, I wish I was near the Tennessee border. I'm actually in uh, Playa del Carmen, Mexico. Yeah, came here about two months ago just to kind of hang out and uh, get some work done, really. I love it, brother. Well, I kind of wish I was in Mexico as well. So that's an awesome place to be, my man. But I know actually that Tennessee is a big part of your origin story and your roots. And I would love to just hear you know, from you, just take us back to the beginning. And can you talk a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up primarily? And as you were growing up, how did your initial interest in travel start to develop when you think back? To go like way back, I was born in Manila in the Philippines to, you know, Filipino parents and, you know, we were immigrants coming to, to Memphis of all places only when I was about a year and a half, two years old. And yeah, I mean, we were kind of your, your typical immigrant family, kind of had very humble beginnings, kind of sharing an apartment complex with other families. And yeah, just being with my parents on their journey, you know, trying to create this uh, American dream for us, which for them, you know, eventually they kind of fulfilled. They 
We're able to create their own businesses, send their kids to really good schools. And, you know, looking back at it now, it's, I'm really like super proud of them and I hope I'm making them proud because, yeah, I mean, it's been, um, you know, one heck of a journey just coming from Manila to Memphis to traveling all over the world and building my own business and things like that. So, yeah, it's just been such a, such a wild ride. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. It's really interesting. So your parents were entrepreneurs. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe about their journey and what you saw as a kid and how that may have inspired or influenced you? Yeah. Well, you know, they came here not as entrepreneurs. When they first came to the States, my dad actually came in the late 80s because he got a job offer as a physical therapist just through you know various cities around the States. I think he had choices from Philadelphia to Chicago to Orlando, Florida, I think some parts in Texas as well. And he chose Memphis because my grandfather loves Elvis Presley. And we all know Elvis is from Memphis. So I think that was one of the, that's what I was always told was the reason why we came. Seems to be kind of a weird reason to come. I was like, all right, well, we love Elvis. So I guess we're going to like, you know, change our whole family's lives because Elvis is from Memphis. But I mean, yeah, watching them just kind of work their, their asses off trying to provide for us and trying to make it into, you know, this kind of crazy world of, you know, the United States was something that in which, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't really see. But looking back at it now and kind of getting older and hearing their story, it's really impacted me because, you know, I, I definitely did see my dad kind of, you know, go through the, the morning grind of waking up early and then going to, you know, to see his patients and, you know, he would go for, to their own homes because usually his patients were people who, you know, didn't have the mobility to make it to a clinic or something. So, you know, I would actually even go with him to his patients as a kid. You know, I would have like a church league basketball game or something being like six, seven years old. And he would just say, hey, I'll take you to your game and you can come with me to my patient's place. And so I would just say yes, you know, and I just thought it was like a day out with dad or something. So I would go out with him and I'm really grateful I did that because it, it kind of gave me a very diverse perspective, kind of meeting people from you know, different ages to different races, being all over the city of Memphis. And so, yeah, it was just a, a really great, great experience. But, you know, it's as I got older, you know, my mom started building her own businesses as well. So she runs her own, you know, suboxone clinic back in Memphis now. But, you know, back then she didn't have her own business. She was the manager of my dad's clinic. Once my dad started making his own clinic and, you know, building that business, you know, she became kind of the manager and kind of the showrunner there. And so around the time I was in my late teens, I noticed my mom was, you know, she was making some moves here and there. She tried to open a restaurant and then she built this kind of business with a friend. And so this uh, kind of mentality of like, you know, work your butt off and, you know, do things on your own and provide for the people you love, you know, that was always instilled in me from the beginning. That's awesome, man. And can you talk a little bit about your Filipino identity growing up as a kid in Memphis? And then also now that you're a world traveler and you've been back to the Philippines as an adult, can you talk about the importance of your Filipino identity and how that may have evolved over the years? Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really good question because that's something in which I've really had to think about a whole lot, you know, within the past years, being, you know, turning almost 30 and kind of like realizing I'm the, uh, you know, around the age that my dad had me, uh, kind of identity has been a big thing. But yeah, growing up in the South as a Filipino, it was really interesting just because when I would go to school or I would hang out with my friends, none of my friends were, were Filipino. The only Filipinos I hung out with were the other Filipino kids, the Filipino American community in Memphis. We'd see them maybe once every two or three months at these Philam parties that we'd have in Memphis, which somehow Memphis has like a pretty big Filipino American community, or at least as a, like a six year old, it, it seemed really big. So I grew up, you know, eating Filipino food, going to these Filipino parties, and kind of diving into that part of myself. But then. Outside of that, I didn't really touch base with it. And, you know, my parents didn't speak Tagalog with me. You know, the, the Tagalog I know is just because of my grandma and I would watch like Filipino TV shows and stuff with her. But, you know, my parents spoke English with me. And all my friends were American and they were American of, you know, different races. And some of them were the, uh, the kids of, uh, immigrants as well. So 
being Filipino in the South, it, it definitely was a bit strange just because the South is a very, it has its own culture, especially the deep South being from Tennessee. And you know, I went to university in Mississippi. So it did feel weird at times just because there weren't, I guess, cultural diversity wasn't like the biggest thing in the South growing up in the early 2000s. So it was definitely a bit awkward at first. And then I went through that whole thing of like, you know, getting made fun of for my race and, you know, some small bits of racism here and there. And that's given me a different perspective also, just because it, I look back at it now and it's like, how could I have accepted the that kind of racism or the things they said when obviously that's not right? And, you know, I went through the phase of just being mad at them. You know, how could they do that? But then kind of accepted the fact that it happened and, you know, they didn't mean any real harm. You know, was it hurtful uh, sometimes? But, you know, I wasn't going to, I never made like the biggest deal out of it. But yeah, I mean, as I got older, it became not the biggest deal. You know, it wasn't really a topic of conversation with friends. They kind of didn't even see me as like Filipino. Yeah, just someone as part of their group. So it's definitely a very interesting experience, Matt. I mean, when I say I was thinking about it a whole lot recently, I really mean like recently, but then the past few years, just because I, I went to the Philippines two summers ago. And you know, as an adult, I'm here like kind of touching base with my Filipino roots. And, you know, I kind of have this identity as, I don't know, like, well, I guess questioning my identity of, you know, am I a Southern American? Am I more like worldly as kind of douchey as that sounds? Or, you know, am I European just because I'm like lived in Europe for the past five years and like even going back to the States and kind of hanging out with American friends feels like a little bit weird. So yeah, it's definitely different. Yeah, man. I think that's very common for a lot of, you know, folks in the diaspora, right? Especially first generation immigrant kids. And so, you know, now that you have traveled the world though, and you've been back to the Philippines and all of that, where did you sort of land on that? Like as you were processing over the last few years, how do you sort of conceptualize it all now? Like what's your perspective on it now versus maybe what it was earlier? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I think I'm still trying to understand just because I, you know, I, when I talk to friends back home and I kind of you know, understand what kind of things they love, they love talking about football, some politics here and there. And I'm like, I don't know nothing about American football other than the group chat we have where they just kind of bombard every day about fantasy league and things like that. And I don't really resonate with that. And I don't really resonate with what I see in the news, which of course, that's just the news. That's a small percentage of what's really going on. Right now, it's more like I'm kind of accepting the fact that I am just a bit more worldly. And that's not even saying that I'm so worldly. I'm a citizen of the world, but it's more like I identify with with many things and I don't have to be one thing or the other. I'm not Francis the Southerner or Francis the American or Francis the the guy who lives in Europe. It's just myself. And I kind of look at everything as kind of uh, grateful and proud of every phase of my life and all the places I've been. I kind of have all of those things within me. So, and they make me. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But I, I don't think I have like one set identity. And, uh, but maybe that's a good thing. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I think it is a good thing. And you're Francis the Memphis Grizzlies fan as well. Let's give some props for that. Oh, the biggest, yeah, just come on now. Like we're probably going to win the championship <laughs> this year. I know we're only like, I know we've lost like three games in a row, but you know, probably going to win every other game this year. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So, all right. So let's go from there, right? From your the next part of your journey, you grew up in Memphis and then you went to college in Mississippi. How was that experience and how did, you know, that part of your journey go? What were your professional aspirations and how was that college experience for you? I had about zero professional aspirations being a 17, 18 year old kid. Like just coming from Memphis, you know, I, I went to that school because there was an opportunity to, to start the lacrosse team there. And it was just like, you know, you're very kind of like shitty division three team. But I thought the idea of like, oh, I can actually make something and I can actually be like, I don't know, a founder of something. And so I wanted to go to this school, not just because it was a good school. It was a really great school, but because I wanted to kind of make an impact in, in some way. But yeah, I mean, going to school in Mississippi, that was also... Yeah, just a very interesting time in my life, not just because of things that happened like later on about my sophomore and junior year, just being in the deep, deep South and having friends from, you know, all across the South, from Arkansas to the boondocks of Mississippi 
to like those raging Cajuns from Louisiana. Yeah, just really all over the place. I, I loved it because really exposed to a lot of diversity, which, you know, I didn't mention before, but it's just something I really loved. Like growing up as a kid, you know, I went to middle school and you know, everybody was from different races and from all over the place and going to Mississippi and, uh, you know, at this college, it, it was the same. And I really liked it. Yeah, you know, I think William Faulkner said, you know, if you want to understand the world, first go to Mississippi or something like that. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because it's such a weird, crazy place that, you know, is horrible with uh, statistics and things like that. But there's a lot of character that stayed with me. And it's, I feel really proud that I spent a good amount of years there. and It did make me into who I am today. That's amazing, man. That's really, really awesome. Now, I know that you mentioned to me that during college, you also ended up struggling with drug addiction. Can you talk a little bit about that journey, both in terms of how you sort of fell into that and then how you eventually got out of that? Yeah, man. I mean, as I said, you know, before, I didn't really have any aspirations, you know, other than to, um, you know, start this team, which really didn't work out on my end, ended up quitting just a couple months in just because when you don't have a goal or a bigger long-term goal, then you kind of get yourself distracted and you start putting your focus on other things. So because I didn't like school and I didn't know what I was doing and anything I did get myself into academically, I just didn't like, I was too bored or something. You know, I just kind of ended up just getting wasted, you know, and at first it was your kind of typical college kid thing of, you know, I'm, getting drunk on the, you know, every day or I'm smoking weed. And then on the weekends, you know, somebody may have a pill here and there of like some Xanax or some Coke or something. And at first it was just really small kind of like weekend things. But then eventually it was like, why do it on Saturday? Let's just do it on Sunday to, you know, beat the hangover. And then Sunday turned to Monday. And then it was like, why would I be hungover when I can just take these pills that make me feel good all the time? But then one pill became two two became three, three became four, four became 10. Why take 10 when I can just do something stronger? And so I kind of like slowly, quote unquote, graduated to harder stuff to you know, the point of that I was doing, yeah, I would, ended up, you know, I moved on to heroin. And that was just like a crazy time in my life because I was functioning as a college kid, not really functioning. I was essentially like failing out of all my classes I, you know, I could afford this. I had a um, on-campus job that, you know, I pretty much bullshitted the way through. I was just, you know, working at the gym, making sure people, you know, swipe their ID cards and things like that and picking up hours just so I can sit there high. And, you know, I got into it because my friends were doing it too. And I think looking back now, it's almost like at the time I kind of got mad at everyone for introducing me to that stuff. But, you know, I was part of it. You know, I was part of the problem as well. And then, Eventually, I wasn't just snorting it or swallowing it. You know, I was crushing up pills and getting syringes at the local Walmart and, you know, shooting up. And, you know, shooting up became you know, every other day to, you know, once a day to multiple times a day. You know, I still remember when, you know, my friend, you know, he looked at me and he was doing it for a while before me. And he said, Francis, if you do this, you have an, like an 85% chance of never getting out. You know that, right? And I said, yeah, I know. I don't care. I want it. And, you know, that's just how it was. Then it just got really, really, really bad, Matt. It was like, I am now stealing things. And I'm lying to people. I'm, I'm cheating in every single way I can just to make a buck. You know, I'm flipping stuff at pawn shops or I'm taking on like weird, like daily jobs or something or getting paid under the table to do this and that or gathering money up so I can buy pills just so I can sell that and make profit and you know, get something harder for myself. And that was kind of my life for better half of like two and a half years or so until, until eventually in October 2014, I had an overdose that almost killed me. I had my friend Parker, he found me like foaming at the mouth in my room. And you know, I woke up about two and a half weeks later or so. And everyone was like, dude, you had an overdose and like nearly died. And that's what got me out of it. And I was happy that it happened. I wasn't really upset. I was disappointed in myself, of course, but I was happy that I finally had a way out because prior to the overdose, about a month before, I tried to get clean. I ended up 
going through like a, you know, a week, two weeks of, of withdrawals of everything you see in movies to the cold sweats to just feeling hot like all the time, insomnia of not sleeping for like eight days and stuff. And like that lasted, that sobriety lasted for like three days until I went back to Jackson, Mississippi and just like ended up doing drugs like pretty much immediately. But when I had my overdose, I was happy because now everybody knew it was out in the open and now I could get help and everyone was going to hold me accountable. And so October 2014, that was when kind of my journey to now started. Can you talk a little bit about that journey of getting clean? Because you mentioned in your story that most people that get that far into heroin addiction may never come out of it. You know, they may have a lifelong struggle with that. So can you talk a little bit about what your path was to getting clean and getting healthy and just being able to pivot from there and just design your dream lifestyle and get on the path that led you to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the best things I had was the support system. I had a pretty bad time with the addiction at its worst. I was shooting up five, six, seven times a day. And half the time I wasn't even getting high. It was more like me just trying to not get withdrawals. So it got pretty bad, but because it was so bad, I I was so grateful that I had a really good support system. So one of the things that really changed me was, you know, I went back home to Memphis and it was fine. I was like sober, you know, two months in, but I'm still like, just like miserable, you know? And one of the, the best people in my life, you know, still today, I'm, I'm so happy. I know, and I love him to death. It's just my friend is uh, my best friend, Frankie, who, you know, I knew him back in high school and you know, he just graduated college at the time too. Uh, well, I didn't graduate, but you know, he kept trying to connect with me. I'm like, Fran, we're back in town, dude. Like, let's hang out. And first, the first two months, I was like ducking him for, I don't know why. I just don't think I was right in the head or something. But eventually, we met up like one time and then hung out for a night. And like, that was it for like another month. But then after that, we started hanging out like every day. And he was big fitness guy, fitness, like junkie, still is. He's a personal trainer. But back then, you know, he was trying to become a fitness model and things like that. And I'm no fitness model, but he just kind of showed me how to be healthy again. And he just being with him, you know, it, it instilled in me really good habits to stay clean, to create goals for myself. Cause you know, fitness guys are always about, you know, the next goal, you know, they're, they're trying to gain weight or cut weight or try to reach, you know, this PR or something. So just being with him was a big part of it. But then he, you know, my support system grew because he, he, his brother came back to town as well. And his brother's friend came and I just hung out with these guys like every day, Matt, like every night going to, to Frankie's house and doing nothing. But like, I don't know, like we were like watching like YouTube fitness videos and playing like Xbox and just, you know, I was away from the drugs and things like that, but it was just nice, you know, just because I was able to be around people who had goals, who wanted to be healthy and you know, were looking forward to the future, you know, not just trying to get like a hit how it was for so long. So yeah, I mean the that support system was so big. And I remember when I was when I was talking to, to Frankie one night and he said you know, his plan was to go to New York to try his hand at, at acting or modeling or something. And he you know he said, uh, you know, Fran, what do you want to do? And I said, Well, you know, man, I always wanted to travel the world. That's always the thing that I, I wanted to do. And he said, you should do it. Like, how do you do that? Like, you know it more than me. Like, how do you do that? And I said, I, I actually had no idea at that time. But it was all about, I just knew some people were, were teaching English abroad. And you know, I had some friends in college who were, who you know, they mentioned it once or twice. But then I looked into it. And then I had some money saved up from the job I was working then. It was like all the money I had. It was all like a thousand bucks or like 900 bucks or something. And it was to get my certification to teach English abroad. And that became my goal. That was like, all right, I'm just going to stay healthy. I'm going to work out with Frankie and I'm going to hang out with these guys. And that's going to be my thing. I made it the goal to like, whatever I'm going to do, I'm just going to, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to go get away from from Memphis. I'm not going to be in Jackson. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to go someplace else. And that's what happened. And how long was it from the time that you were recovering? You started your recovery in Memphis and getting healthy and, and, and all of that until you left the United States to start traveling the world. And where did you go first? 
Yeah, it was only about nine, 10 months. So I had my overdose October 2014, and I boarded a plane to move to Barcelona, Spain in August 2015. So whatever that is, about nine, 10 months, nine and a half months or so. And yeah, I remember I you know, was going to the university in Memphis to pick up these practicum hours to get teaching experience and things like that. And I'm like attending these online meetings to like how to teach English online. And, you know, it's great that I got the certification, but then I was just getting rejection after rejection, trying to apply to places because back then, you know, you had to have this certification. Some places wanted you to have it for a couple of years. Some of the schools or programs wanted you to have a teaching degree or an English degree or something, which I didn't have. So it definitely took like a little bit of time. But I remember when I, you know, I applied to like 100, 200 places, would only get a handful of responses. But then eventually a program did accept me. That was based in Spain and they placed me in Barcelona, which was, I still love thinking about that just because I remember getting in the car with like my mom. I was like, I have to go to an interview. They'll only interview me in like Washington, D.C. or something. And she was like, all right, we'll drive there. So we drove like 12 hours together. She drove, you know, we stayed in like some like crummy hotel or something just so I can do this interview. Yeah. I mean, she was a big part of it, just being a really great support system. And just someone she, you know, she works with addicts and the fact that she kind of took care of me and there was no judgment or even like anger towards me for doing what I did. That was big. Yeah. Going to Barcelona, that was my first stop, but it wasn't the city. I was actually in a, a little, I guess, town or village 45 minutes outside of Barcelona called St. Kirza del Valles. And I was uh, teaching English at a, at a local trilingual school over there. And so that's what set it off right there. That's awesome, man. I love Barcelona as well. It is one of my favorite cities in the world. Oh, it's amazing. You and I were actually there at the same time because I lived in Barcelona for about five weeks in 2015. So we were actually there at the same time, might have even crossed paths on the street, who knows. But I would love to hear from you what your Barcelona experience was like. What do you love about Barcelona? I mean, especially maybe for people that haven't been there, what was that like for you? Man, Barcelona was crazy for me, just like in almost in every way possible, just because when I first arrived, I wasn't in Barcelona. You know, I was in this town and I just went from being totally sober in Memphis, just being like a Southerner, hanging out, driving my car around Memphis to here I am like this small town in the middle of Spain or, you know, Catalonia. And I just remember thinking it was so crazy because my host family's Catalan and I'm hanging out with the Catalan family every Sunday. Every Sunday we would have lunch together with all the other brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And there's like 50 people there and I don't speak Catalan. I barely spoke Spanish at the time. And it was just crazy, you know, and I was like trying to be a good teacher. I didn't want to mess it up, but I remember like the sheer overwhelm I felt. This is so crazy. And every turn I took in Barcelona, every time I boarded the the train or the suburban railway or things like that, I it just felt like an adventure to me. You know, anytime I would buy a ticket for public transportation, I was just like blown away by it. I ended up leaving the host family and then I was in founder of couple of roommates in the city center of Barcelona. And yeah, that just like shifted things into overdrive. It's just amazing, man. I mean, you've been there. So it's like, you know, how it's all these little neighborhoods are just absolutely gorgeous. And I was lucky enough to have a, a flat in the neighborhood called Gracia. And, you know, it's kind of bohemian and everyone's kind of drinking in the square, you know, on the, in the squares and chilling, smoking cigarettes on the ground. And everyone's so like cool and hip. And I was just, being a city kid in Barcelona, which, yeah, it was just so wild. I mean, it's such a fun city. It's so gorgeous. The people are gorgeous. I mean, there's always something to do. You know, Barcelona, there's the, the ocean's really cool, but it's also quite urban. But then there's mountains that aren't too far either. So it was kind of perfect because, you know, I would be like, yeah, let's go on a, on a hike or, you know, let's go to that crazy monument in the middle of nowhere, seemingly. Or you know, let's hit up the beach or something. So it's something for everyone. And just me being from the South and kind of having this whole city as my playground was just, it was just really crazy. And even looking back at it now, I kind of like laugh at myself because I was such an idiot being only 
23, 24 at the time of like, you know, exploring this big ass city, parties and people and trying to learn two languages and meeting people from all over the world. It's it's just, it was incredibly overwhelming at that time. And I kind of see that now that I was pretty overwhelmed, but I'm so happy I did it. And I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. As you know, anyone who goes to Barcelona just absolutely loves it. Yeah, man. And that's why it's good to go back too, right? Because the first time you go, you have your initial experience with Barcelona. And then I've now gone back multiple times, right? The first time I went was in 2014. It was just a shorter trip. So I was like, I got to come back and live here for at least a month. So then I came back in 2015 and I was based in El Born, which is a super dope community. And then I went back again in 2018. I was there and I was based in Gracia as well, your hood, for about a month. And that was just such a cool and very different community. And it was just, you know, each time you go back, I feel like I have different experiences with Barcelona, which are all amazing. But, you know, you just kind of like stack and layer your appreciation for Barcelona every time you go. And you also mentioned to me that you went up into the Pyrenees Mountains, which I have actually not yet done. So how was that? Yeah, that was probably one of the most epic memories I ever had just because when I went, I was still with the host family and they had a house in the Pyrenees. And I remember I was sitting there in the Pyrenees, you know, where I'm setting up the, the table for lunch or something and we're eating like artichokes or something. I can't even remember, but yeah, I just remember sitting there and I was thinking, holy crap, I had my overdose like a year ago today. I was sitting in a, I was just thinking, you know, I, I was in a, uh, Jackson, Mississippi hospital a year ago. And now here I am looking over the mountains right now at this little house, like on these hills and stuff like that. I think if you like go to my personal Facebook and you scroll to like 2015, there's like, I actually made like a little post about it. And I was just amazed, just absolutely, absolutely blown away. I was like, wow, so much stuff can happen in a year. And yeah, it's definitely one of the most epic moments I've ever had. That's awesome, man. Well, I know you've also spent a lot of time in Budapest in Hungary. I think that's the the place outside the U.S. that you've spent the most time since you started traveling. And I would love for you to share just a little bit about what Budapest is like and why you love it there so much. Yeah. I mean, I came and after my year in Barcelona, I moved to Budapest to continue my brief teaching career. And I was only going to be there for one year, had this whole plan of like, I'm just going to teach five countries in five years and just be like that kind of guy. I ended up just falling in love with Budapest. And, you know, Budapest is, I don't know, it's one of those places that's really resonated with me. There's something about the vibe there that it's kind of urban, a bit cold, a bit gray, a bit grimy, but still like aesthetically gorgeous that I don't have the heart to leave. And you know, I've been there since 2016 and I absolutely love it. I mean, it's it's one of those places in which I think everyone I know who's been there, they love it as well. And anyone who stays long and just ends up staying longer or wanting to stay even longer than that. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those places in which I kind of grew up a whole lot, too, from just being like this dumb kid and to not having much aim in my life other than like teaching and hanging out and trying to meet people, too. Yeah, being a business owner. And being based there. So, I mean, Budapest is it's one of those places to which I call it home. And it's as much home to me as Memphis is. And, you know, I feel just as good there as any place I've ever been. And so it's just a really kick-ass place because, you know, 
if you want to like have a good time and meet people when you're extroverted and things like that, you know, there's plenty of parties and things like that as well. But if you enjoy kind of kicking back and meeting chiller people or, you know, going to cafes and just doing that old thing, then there's plenty of that as well. And of course, I have a girlfriend and she's Hungarian and love her to death. And we have, we have a great life over there. But yeah, just so many great memories over the years in Budapest. I still want to keep making some more there. That's awesome, man. I love that. Well, I would also love to talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial transition because I feel like a lot of people start off exactly where you did, which was say, I want to travel the world. One of the ways that I can go and live in another amazing country is I can teach English there and that's how I'll finance my lifestyle. And I think there's a lot of people that start off with that and they get out of the country and they start their journey that way. And then for you, how did you make the transition from being a teacher into what you're doing now? I would say after my first year teaching in Budapest, I slowly realized I just wasn't liking what I was doing, but I was like, I don't want to teach anymore. If I go to Hong Kong or something, I don't think I'm going to be any happier teaching. So I did the whole thing of like, how do I make money online? How do I travel, and make money and all that stuff? The typical Google searches, you know? And so I just found out a whole lot of different things from like Amazon FBA, dropshipping, all this stuff. None of it really resonated with me. And I had no idea what I was going to do. But then I went to some international meeting point in Budapest. Well, the gathering is called International Meeting Point. And uh, it's where people from other countries or you know, Hungarians as well, you can go there and meet people and whatnot. And then I ran into a, a young German guy, 20-year-old, a guy named Finn Lobson. So Finn, if you're listening to this, shout out, man. I just asked him, I was like, what do you do? You're like young, you get to travel, you get to do these things. He's like, oh, I'm a freelance copywriter. And I didn't know what it was. I thought he was like a lawyer and things like that. But he was like, no, I do. It's like salesmanship in print. And I was interested in you know, what he was doing. And so we kept in touch. He sent me some resources. Now I got into the big like watching YouTube videos and reading blogs. And um, you know, he would just like send me videos of himself like doing work in like a cafe while I was like, at the kindergarten where I was teaching and stuff. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And so. I remember I got like my really bad like Hungarian salary, like teacher salary, which was only like for half the month because it was December. And so we didn't work for the other half. And I was like, I'm going to take this. I'm going to get like a really shitty laptop and try this. I didn't even have a laptop at the time. And so I did the whole thing of like, I got some like really awful laptop on Facebook marketplace that was already dying on its last leg. And it's like, he would only charge if I you know, propped up the charger up against like a coffee mug or something like that and created my Upwork profile at the time. And that's when it started. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this for sure. This is, And then, you know, once I got the laptop, I was like, I guess I have to go 100% into it. And so I told my uh, the school that I wanted to go part-time and focus on freelance copywriting, which was, um, yeah, and that's what I've been doing ever since then. That's amazing. And you've now built and scaled it into a six-figure income and you are doing it totally location independently. You're in Mexico right now, as you mentioned. And I would love to pull out some of your expertise because you have helped a lot of companies increase their revenue significantly just by improving their copywriting and their email marketing strategy. And what I'd love to do, because we have a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast, and all of us can use some improvement in those areas. And I would love to sort of pull out some of your top tips for companies to really take this to the next level. So I think a good place to start maybe is just sort of at the macro level. So when you come in and you start working on a project with a company to really take their email marketing to the next level, talk to me about those initial steps. I mean, in terms of target market research, psychographics, understanding who you're writing to, you know, let's start sort of at that level and then the list segmentation and kind of from there at the macro level, and then we'll go down to the specifics. So, you know, give us some tips there in terms of where should people start and what's the kind of the big picture, important things to do first. Yeah, 100%. So one of the main things I do when I first onboard a client, start working with the business is understanding one, what are they doing now in regards to their messaging, into their email strategy, into their copy? And to do all of that, I need to start with 
researching their market. So understanding who they're selling to, who their ideal customer is, but it's not just asking the typical questions of like, what are their pain points? What are their desires? What are their you know, the things they want the most? But it's more like actually understanding who they are to like almost a cellular level, to understanding you know, where they hang out offline, who they hang out with, who do they follow on Instagram? What do they read when they're not reading stuff on the internet? What kind of books do they want? Who do they want to be? And a lot of that is just, just so when I write to the customer that I, I really resonate with them and I can be as different as possible. You know, I think if you, the deeper you get, the more research you do, then your copy is going to be a hell of a lot better, but then you can actually write copy faster. So kind of going down and like really understanding that target market really, really, really down to the core is so crucial. The research like takes up about like 80% of my time. And then when it comes to actually the email marketing strategies, I like to look at, you know, what they're doing now. Are they segmenting the list? What kind of emails are they writing to their to, to their email list? This is just your typical promo of like 20% off here, 30% off here, 50% off here, like every other week? Or are they actually showcasing a story behind it? Are they showing personality? Do the emails do the emails read like it's coming from an actual person and not just a business? So that's what I like to do. And that's one of the biggest shifts that I always make with anyone I work with is let's change the messaging from being sounding like some company with some businessy jargon to actually putting a personality to it. And sometimes I even go with actually putting a face to it. So I'll even ask the companies that can I have a spokesperson to write? So it'll be Matt from company instead of just being you know, from the company and the from name. And then you know we, we go down to creating automations, trying to figure out what kind of offers do they have and what kind of automations can be set up so that we're not just sending emails, but we can actually send emails you know, on automation and make money you know, overnight on autopilot. You know, as cliche as that sounds, that's something I think also every business should also look into more. It's like, how can we connect the automations that we have so we can be a lot more robust and sophisticated? So right. that's one of the things I really look forward to um, when I even just audit a company. Right. Okay. So we just start off with really doing that in-depth research on the target market and the understanding that there may be different sub-markets within the target market that have varying pain points or varying aspirations and might resonate better with different messages. And so then you segment the list so that you are writing directly and specifically to each of those sub-markets, speaking directly to them, to who they are, to what their needs and aspirations are. And then once you're able to do that, as you said, which is the big part of it, now how do you craft the emotionally driven story-based copy, which I know is a really central part of, of your strategy. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, it's all about segmenting the list into understanding what mm-hmm. resonates with them. You know, there's the highly engaged, the highly engaged list who will practically buy everything you promote. And then there's the mid-engaged list who, you know, maybe they're just opening the emails and you know, just reading and not buying anything, or perhaps they're they're clicking on certain products and they seem interested, which we can gather from the data and trying to figure out how we can actually get, maybe get that first purchase or actually to purchase that particular product. But um, you know, to create these emotionally driven stories, it's all in the market research. You know, a lot of the times you can look at the testimonials and the reviews and look at what changes did our product or service make that you know what was the impact. What kind of result were people trying to get and what results did they get from our product or service? So it's one of those things in which, you know, you can actually look into what you have now, the assets you have now that you can create stories. And you can even look at your own company story, your own brand story. You know, if you have a personal brand, your own background story, you can even find these little stories that people really resonate with that you can implement in your welcome sequence. For example, that people you know, really just love. You know, I was just consulting with a, the health coach recently and she was like, Francis, I have no idea what to do. I'm trying to get you know, my messaging down pat. Like, what do you think I should showcase on my website or in my emails? And I'm like, I asked you, you've been doing this for a few years now. What is 
something that has happened? What is something you've said to someone or shared to your clients that really impacted them? She was like, oh, well, it's my story. You know, when I told them about my struggle with chronic pain or whatever she was dealing with and trying to help her clients, she said, you know, that's, you know, it's brought them to tears. And that's something that is absolutely powerful. And I was like, you know, Pam, use that, like use that story, like go with that. And yeah, I mean, after that, you can actually kind of uh, go through your testimonials and pick out like little stories to share, which uh, are really powerful. That's awesome, man. So then once you have the copy written and you have the onboarding sequence or the welcome sequence or different types of follow-up sequences, you know, for the different segments of your list that are speaking directly to them with emotionally driven stories that are going to resonate with them, then you're able to automate it and set up the automation feature. So when they opt in for your website or your free gift, then that triggers the you know, the onboarding sequence or whatever it is, and you've got that automated. Now, what tips do you have, Francis, for increasing deliverability, increasing open rates, and sort of just getting better overall kind of metrics and performance out of your email strategy? Yeah, for sure. Well, if anyone's listening to this and you don't know what email deliverability is, it's all about how well your emails are being delivered to the primary inbox to your readers. We have like those filters now where it's your primary inbox, your promotions, and then your spam folder. And, you know, so email deliverability, well, good email deliverability is making sure those emails get to the primary because the more the emails get to the primary, then the more opens you get, and the more opens you get, the more clicks you get, the more clicks you get, the more likely you're going to get some sales. So increasing deliverability is all about engagement and ensuring that your readers are actually engaging and doing stuff to your emails. So the way that these filters, these spam filters in Gmail, Yahoo, or what have you, how they determine a good email is if the sender has a good reputation. So if you continually send emails and no one's opening your emails and maybe they even open it and just like quickly bounce out, that's just going to hurt you in the long run. And over time, you'll end up, if you have a bad email strategy, you'll end up conditioning your, your readers to think, okay, this email sucks. Their emails suck, so I'm just not going to open it. If I do keep opening it, I'm just not going to read it or do anything with it. So the best thing you can do to improve your email deliverability is, one, is shorten your your segment that you're sending your emails to to the only the highest engaged subscribers. So those are the people who are depending on how often you email and your products, then it's the ones who have opened your email within the last 21 days. And you know, I've done this with clients before where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to send it to the highest engaged and it's only like 15% of their list or like a fifth of their list or something. And they're like, oh, well, it's, it's so low. Like I'm not reaching anyone. When I always say, well, you're not reaching anyone anyways. And you're also shooting yourself in the foot because you have people who are receiving your emails and they're not opening it. So now the filters are thinking, okay, well, this sender sucks. So I'm going to send them to promo or even spam. So to make sure that doesn't happen is to make sure you send emails that are make customers engaged. You know, so that's focusing on your copy and inspiring them to take action in the email. So it's making them click on the emails or making them forward the emails to another person. Or, you know, my favorite is actually making them reply to the email because, you know, that's like so powerful. If you're a business and you actually have people replying to your emails, that's showing the filters that, oh shit, like they actually like these emails. Like they're responding, they're engaging. So I want to make sure that those emails get sent to primary. That's one of those things that I think every business should be focusing on in regards to their automations or email campaigns is how can I inspire people to reply back, to click on the email, to share. So those are like just in a messy way, some tips to increase your email deliverability and overall open rates. So Francis, let me just ask for the people that have established businesses, maybe they've been running their businesses for many years, they've been building their email list, maybe they have a pretty sizable list at this point, but they say, you know what, Francis, I just send the same email to my entire list. I, honestly, I don't have it segmented. At this point, if somebody has that established business with an existing single email list, what would be the first steps for them to begin meaningfully segmenting that list? How should they approach that process? 
Yeah, so I think they should go to the ESP, whether that's Active Campaign, whether that's Clavio or you know Mailchimp or Entreport, and to look at who is actually opening your emails recently, who's resonating with your message right now. Over time, if you keep sending to the same big email segment, that's going to hurt you in the long run. People are going to end up you know not opening and whatnot. So what you have to do is gather those people who are engaged with the emails. So those are the ones who are engaged with your brand right now. So if you create a segment of people who have opened your emails, your last five emails, your last seven emails, or in the last 21 days, and you just send to those people, then you're going to automatically start boosting your your email reputation. And those filters are going to be thinking, okay, well, he's a really good sender. He's not bothering anyone with his emails because... The people he's sending to are opening it and they're engaging with it. That's very crucial. After that, then you can actually look at the bigger picture of going into your welcome sequence and making that more engaging. You know, how can you change your messaging? How can you change your, your brand story and how uh, people are introduced to your business and brand so that you can condition them to actually open your emails more? And then beyond the segmentation by engagement, if people wanted to start segmenting by the sort of the niche target market, like we talked about, about some people might have different types of pain points or different types of aspirations, you know, in the general product category, which is why they're on your list, but you might need to be writing different email copy to different segments of your list. So once you, let's say, identify the highest engaged segments of your list, do you recommend surveying that segment and then based on the survey results, sort of tagging people in different categories and then starting to send differential email copy or like, what is that process like? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, one of my things that we I like to do is just eventually have some type of survey in an automation or an entire automation dedicated just to the survey. That way we can even see what products do they want, what products do they don't want, even if our messaging doesn't resonate with them or if some part of the business doesn't resonate with them. So that's another part of market research that you can leverage. And you know, I've leveraged in the past. But then also, you know, just to see if they've already had a certain product, then I already know then, okay, well, then I won't promote this product or this service to them. And so it's all about making sure that their journey throughout their relationship with the business is tailored to them. So nothing like sucks worse, at least in my opinion, is when I get an email from a business owner or from a business and it's like, you know, check this service out or check this product out. And like, I already have it. For me, I see that and I'm like, well, you're obviously not paying attention to your email list because you're not paying attention to, you know, my relationship with you. So using a survey or you know, looking at the tags that you have in your list and seeing you know, what people have bought or you know what they've shown interest in, that that's also a very powerful way to make sure that yeah, your email strategy is tailored to your subscribers and that you're not just pummeling them with the same offer over and over again, which will eventually just piss them off and they'll unsubscribe and then it's going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. So as people are listening to this podcast and business owners with email, existing email lists are listening to this podcast, when they jump off this and they want to do something immediately to start improving the performance of their email marketing, right? There's obviously a whole comprehensive strategy, you know, that, that you run for people and that you talk about. But what would you say is the biggest leverage point, right? Like all these different things we're discussing, what would you say when you really see those big revenue boosts from the email marketing, what is sort of the biggest leverage points that companies can change from what they're doing now to what's going to get them significantly better results? Yeah. You know, right now, if there's a business owner who's like, okay, I'm just going to revamp my, my email marketing is yeah, really look at who you're sending to and look at if that segment is dynamic and if people who are not interested in your emails, if they're being kicked off of that segment, because the more you boost your email reputation, your sender reputation, then the better you can leverage other things. So if your reputation is good, then you double the chances, triple the chances of having your welcome sequence read. You know, if you have good deliverability, then you, know, you boost the chances of your cart recovery emails being read. And instead of being sent to promo where everyone else's emails are, I mean, think about that, that when you send an email out, 
And, you know, you maybe have like a medium to like low sender reputation. And then you just end up, you know, being put into the primary promotions folder where, you know, a lot of the shitty emails are, you know, all the ones that are just graphic based and just bad. So if you're really wanting to do something now, it's boost your email reputation, your sender reputation by sending to your highest engaged. Even if it's like a small group, a fifth of your list, I guarantee you that in the next few weeks, when you start kind of expanding your segment, you're going to get a lot better results. That tip there is like half sending to your highest engaged segment, but then also half list cleaning, which I think a lot of businesses need to do. And so just to clarify, Francis, when you take that top, you know, 20% of your list, let's say, right, the top one fifth of the most engaged people on your list, and you just start sending there, what do you do with the other 80%? Do you eventually integrate them back in? Do you just get rid of those subscribers? Do you send them, put them into a separate sequence that says we're going to take you off our list if you don't engage? Like, you know, what do you do once you pick out that top 20%? What do you do with the other 80? Yeah. So with the other 80, I even go to the to the bottom 20%. And it's like, I even see who hasn't even like opened an email in the past, like, for example, six months. In that case, they're off the list completely. So I completely clean it. You know, with the other part of that, you know, the 80%, I eventually try to bring them in. So once I believe the deliverability has gotten better, then I will slowly creep it up the level of engagement to, you know, maybe it won't be just the last 21 days. Maybe it'll be the last... 45 days now. So now it's an even even bigger list. So then, you know, eventually some of those people into that 80%, they're going to open more. So now my highest engaged segment is even bigger. So I like to entertain those people and not really send them, not send them like these salesy promotional emails, but more like more, I would say just very human to human of like, you know, do you still want to be on this list? You know, click here if you want to unsubscribe or if, I am reviving a dead list. I like to send them an email that says, hi, this is the, you know, the this person from this business and we're doing something different with the emails for now on. It's our new strategy. You can expect to get you know, two, three, four emails a week from us for now on. And this is what's new. So it's all about being very transparent with what you're doing and trying to bring them to this highest engaged segment because that's going to be your moneymaker right there. That is awesome. All right, Francis, great advice. At this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yeah, 100%. Ready. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right, what is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? Just Kids by Patti Smith, which is not like a businessy book or anything. It's more of like a memoir like moving to New York in the 70s. And I always kind of resonate with that. If you like good storytelling and you want to even learn how to write good stories uh, in your emails, I would check out Just Kids by Patty Smith. Awesome. What is one travel hack that you use that you can share and recommend to people? Yeah, I would just say wherever you're traveling to, join the Facebook group of travelers and expats that are there. I've literally gotten out of trouble and gotten so much help and made friends just by joining like a group for like five days, just saying I'm in town. Can someone help me out or something? And yeah, I would just say just join the group even for a few days. That's my favorite thing to do. Awesome. If you could have dinner with any one person that's currently alive today that you've never met, just you and that person, who would you choose? Oh man, that's a really good question. Probably like someone Someone crazy, man. Probably like Paul McCartney or something. I feel like he would have some crazy stories or like, I don't know. My favorite comedian is Theo Vaughn. And I feel like me and him would have a good conversation over like crawfish or something. So I'd probably say <laughs> two of those people. That's awesome, man. All right, Francis, knowing everything that you know now and everything that you've experienced in your life up to this point, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Francis? I'd probably just say, learn to meditate, you know, to not be so impulsive, to be more introspective. And it's not weird or anything, just to, uh, you know, the feelings that you're feeling now, those are, they're wild and you should try to tame them or at least accept them. So definitely sit down for 10 minutes, big guy, and 
try to get yourself squared away. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right. Of all of the places that you have traveled in the world up to this point, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you would most recommend people check out? Oh, yeah. I would definitely recommend Budapest, Hungary, my home away from home. Number two would be Rhodes, Greece. I think it was just absolutely stunning. And I loved it there. And I love how it's very chill. And number, number three would probably be probably just Barcelona, man. It's just a, it's an animal of a city. And I think everyone should go check it out. I agree. Those are great picks, man. All right, Francis, what are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places that you've never been. They're the highest on your list you would most love to see. Yeah. Let's see. I'd probably say number one is Vietnam, just because I think that would just be insane. I don't know what it's like over there. Number two would uh, probably be like Russia or something, just because I just think it's wild. I'd probably even go to like a weirder place, like, I don't know, like in the middle of Russia, probably not even like Moscow or anything, but like, yeah, the middle of Russia. Number three would probably be... I haven't been to Morocco and I've never been to Africa. So just to get that off my bucket list, I think to say I've been to Africa, I think it'd be cool. So Morocco would be number three. Those are great picks, man. I have been to Vietnam and Morocco a couple times each. So definitely hit me up when you're ready for those. And I just did an amazing trip through Russia in 2019, which I should talk about because I went for a month and I did two weeks between St. Petersburg and Moscow. And then I did two weeks going on the Trans-Siberian Railway. No way. Moscow all the way across Siberia to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And I did it with like a whole crew of nomads. It was absolutely unbelievable. We're stopping at all the towns on the way through Siberia and it was just totally epic, bro. So when you're ready to plan that rush trip, hit me up for sure. Oh, 100%. That sounds insane. I love that. Totally, totally epic, man. So, all right, Francis, at this point, I want to ask you a little bit about your business offering. Who would be the type of ideal client, the best fit for your customers? You know, who would be the right person to work with you and what are the services that you offer? Yeah. So right now I work with a handful of coaches, consultants, mentors who have online courses, digital products, you know, they're affiliates of other businesses. Um, And what I offer is creating a full spectrum done for you email marketing strategy and service. So basically it's be completely hands off for you. And I would essentially just do all of the email copy, implementation, strategy, and yeah, making sure all the automations are in working order and they're sophisticated and robust as possible. And yeah, ensuring that your your messaging and overall copy resonates with your ideal audience. And growing that list as much as possible with qualified leads and people who just want to buy your stuff over and over again. That's awesome, man. So do you do sort of like a free consultation for business owners that want to have that discussion with you and see if it's the right fit? How should people learn more about it and come into your world and all that? Yeah. So, you know, if you want to come into my world, then you can just go to my website at storiesandcopy.com, join my email list, uh, you know, stay in touch with me that way. And if you are interested, then, uh, you know, in working together, then my whole thing is to get on a call for 30 minutes just to see if we're a right fit, if I have the bandwidth, if you have the bandwidth, if we even like each other. You know, I don't work with everyone. And that's just for the betterment of myself and you know, the person I'm talking to. So, yeah, join my email list. I have a couple products coming out. I have my new ebook called The Click Rate Code that I just released. So, you can get that for free just by joining my email list, actually. So, Yeah. If you're interested, contact me and stay in touch. Awesome. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes, folks. So just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode. We're going to have Francis's website there, how you can get onto his list, get his free content. And if you want, you can set up that free consultation with him. Francis, this was awesome, man. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, brother. This was a blast. Yeah, it it was awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Good night, everybody. 
Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.